Okay, so I have been asking, um, thinking about what other people who have heard me talk on this have taken to calling mattering theory. Um, I had I didn't I hadn't given it such a pompous name, but but I think it fits actually. Um, I think that uh, the will to matter, the desire to matter, the instinct for mattering. Um, is at the heart of so much human behavior um, and so much that is most laudable about us and so much that is most frightening, terrifying, um, uh, atrocious about us. But that people in general, um, as soon as the basic survival needs are met for them and the ones that they love, uh, want to think that it their life matters, they pursue their lives as if they matter, they care about their lives, um, and, um, and they come up with various views as to why they matter. Uh, and these are the kinds of views that help them to shape their lives. I think it's this mattering instinct that leads to you know, religion and to various ideologies. Um, people even willing to give up their lives uh, if they think that that's what's going to make them matter. Um, but you know, it also you know leads to our endeavors in science, in art, and um, social activism. Um, anyway, I'm thinking about mattering and the ways uh, that it works for us, and the ways that it works against us, the ways that it's dangerous. Uh, I think a lot of moral questions. Uh, can be answered in terms of mattering theory. That mattering, this concept of mattering, for me, um, I have to work it all out, but my uh, intuition is that it bridges the is-ought gap. Um, that to determine that certain things matter is also to say that we ought to do them, that we ought to pursue them. So it's a very, it's a bridge concept. The, the, the birth of the is-ought gap uh, this terminology uh, derives from David Hume. Um, and he says in a very famous paragraph, I think it's in the treatise on human nature, uh, that you know, you're know you reading along and some philosopher and he's talking about this is the case, that that is the case, whereas, and suddenly there's this move to, and this ought to be the case, that ought to be the case. And how, he said, how can you derive ought statements from is statements. Uh, you know, there, there, there's simply a gap. Um, and, and, and it's been taken to be axiomatic ever since Hume, uh, among a whole class of philosophers, that, uh, that, there, that this is, there is this is-ought gap, and that you know, there are is statements, there are ought statements, you can't derive ought from is, and anybody who does is committing some sort of fallacy. They're hiding the ought statements among the is statements. Um, and you know, to a certain extent, I think that that's true. But I think uh, that there are certain statements that we make about ourselves that are already ought statements um, and that are very, very hard to that are impossible to live without, you know, that when certain, um, and that certain consequences follow from that. Uh, so I, but that we, 
we feel we can't, we can't pursue our lives without thinking that our lives matter. I mean, simply to you know, take actions on the basis of your desires is to say that you know, your, your life matters. You have a right to, uh, to act on the basis of your desires. Um, and it, it's inconceivable to pursue a human life uh, without these kinds of assumptions, that your own life matters to some extent. Um, I, I think that that is what clinic, clinical depression is, is when you are convinced that you don't and will never matter. That's a pathological state uh, where you just don't want to do anything. But to be a normal person is to live and to act. So to say that you matter, first of all, I should say, is not to say that you cosmically matter, that you matter to the universe. Um, you know, my very firm opinion is that we don't matter to the universe, of course, the religious point of view is that we do matter to the universe. Uh, but so to say that one matters isn't to say that you matter to the universe, nor is it to say that you matter more than others. In fact, I think that is always a fallacy in the deepest ethical sense. To the extent that you matter, everybody matters to exactly the same extent. I think that's sort of the core of the moral point of view. Um, but then we all have these ways of carving out our own individual mattering. So you, you, you mentioned somebody who thinks that they don't matter as a thinker because they're not the greatest thinker in their department. You know, they're somebody better than they are. So this is what I call the mattering map, you know, that we all, in terms, you know, in what matters to us individually, uh, what, what we would like to achieve in our life, uh, the kind of characteristics that we want to augment and be recognized for, that we value in ourselves, this varies from person to person. Um, and, you know, you, I, so obviously, I mean, I'm a philosopher, I'm a writer. It matters to me that I think well and that I write well. Um, and I could feel like I don't matter because, you know, other people think better than I and, or, or, or write better than I. And, you know, it's good to gain perspective about on these sorts of things. But um, I'm particularly interested in the ways in which the will to matter go terribly wrong. Uh, that... Um, the kind of false universalizing that often takes place. When you figure out what matters to you and what makes you feel like you're living a meaningful life, um, and you universalize this, you know, it matters to me that, I, um, that I'm a philosopher or that I'm interested in science. Why, doesn't every, why isn't everybody interested in philosophy? Why doesn't everybody get their sense of meaning and transcendence from science? Um, that kind of false uh, universalizing that takes place. And then also the very, very, I think, fallacious view that in order to achieve a life, you know, of, of meaning and, and feeling like you matter uh, in a reasonable degree, um, you have to matter to the universe. Um, and, you know, there, so the universe must be personal, godlike or something, and it must care about you, you know, and that's a kind of... Uh, false reasoning about mattering as well. So I'm, these are the things I'm thinking about. You know, I'm very also, I want to explain this mattering instinct in terms of uh, evolutionary psychology, because I think everything about us, everything about human nature uh, demands an evolutionary explanation. So I think it's incumbent on all philosophers to take in all of the science uh, to keep abreast of all science, uh, you know, and especially as it impinges on the questions that they're thinking about. This particular question, um, 
the science that impinges on it, uh, that's, that's relevant to it, um, is evolutionary psychology. But you know, I've done other philosophy where it was theoretical physics that was um, impinging on the philosophy. I was, I was, but so that philosophers always have to be um, fully up to date on, on science. There are many philosophers who, uh, in fact, most of, most of the philosophers I, I respect keep abreast of, um, of science. The ones who do philosophy of, of physics, Tim Maudlin, Dave Albert, uh, they, have, they have doctorates in physics and uh, you know, they publish in physics. Um, you know, science is science and philosophy is philosophy. And here's how I, it takes a philosopher to say, to, to, do, uh, to do the demarcation. How does science differ? From philosophy, because that's not a scientific question. Um, in fact, what science is is not itself a scientific question. So it's it's a, the basic question in philosophy of science. What is science? what is science? Here's what I think science is. Science um, is this ingenious motley uh, collection of techniques and cognitive abilities that we use in order to try to figure out what is, the questions of what is, uh, what exists, what kind of universe are we living in. Um, and, you know, people are about the scientific method. I think there's, a, there's no method. That makes it sound like it's a recipe. One, two, three, you know, do this and you're, and you're doing science. They're just, it's a grab bag of different uh, techniques and cognitive abilities um, you know, observation, you know, collecting of data, testing, a priori mathematics, theorizing, um, and you know, different scientific activities call for different talents, different cognitive abilities. So a geologist who's collecting samples of soil and rocks in order to figure out thermal resistance, um, the kind of abilities and techniques that he's using compared to a um, a cognitive scientist who's uh, uh, figuring out a, a computer simulation of long-term memory compared to Albert Einstein per, per, uh, performing a thought experiment, what it's like to write a light wave compared to uh, a string theorist working out the mathematical implications of 11 dimensions of M-theory compared to a computational biologist uh, sifting through big data in order to uh, uh, spot uh, genomic phenotypes. These are all so very, very different. These are very different cognitive abilities and, and talents. And they're all brought together in order to figure out um, what kind of universe we're living in, what are the laws of nature. And here's the wonderful trick about science. Given all of these motley, you know, uh, attributes, talents, techniques, activities. Um, science, in order for it to be science, you have to bring reality itself um, into the picture as a collaborator. Science is a way to prod reality to answer us back when we're getting it wrong. Right? That's, you know, that's what, 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 what science, um, it's, it's an amazing thing that we figure this out because our intuitions are, are skew. Uh, why shouldn't they be? We're just evolved apes, as we know through science. Um, and so, you know, our views about space and time, causality, individuation, they're all, they're off. And science, you know, has been able to correct this because 
through, you know, that no matter how theoretical it is, you have to be able to get out your predictions, you have to be able to get reality to say, oh yeah, so you think simultaneity is absolute, do you? No matter which frame of reference you're measuring it in, you know, that are moving in relation to, to each other, well, we're just going to see about that, right? And, you know, you perform the tests and, and sure enough, our intuitions are wrong. So that's what science is. Um, and if philosophers think that they can compete with that, then they are off their rockers. I mean, that's the mistake that a lot of scientists make when they, I call them philosophy jeerers, the ones who just dismiss philosophy, um, you know, that you know has nothing to, to add, um, because they think that philosophers are trying to compete with this amazing grab bag that we've worked out uh, and uh, that, that it gets reality itself to be a collaborate, collaborator. Um, but what I've just said is all philosophy, right? And just describing what it is that science does. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of rewording of what Karl Popper had said. And so what philosophy does, I think, what philosophy has always done, it's not trying to get reality to answer us back when we're getting it wrong. That's science. Um, it's not really trying to say what is the case. The best means we have for saying what is the case is science. Uh, but it can help us answer what matters. For example, um, that science matters, that knowing what kind of reality we live in, that that matters. Um, we need a philosophical case for that. Um, whether, you know, human life matters or, 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 or uh, the pain of animals matter, or you know whether truth, beauty, and goodness matter. These are all questions for philosophers. You, you know, I, I had made a reference to um, science as this ingenious thing that we finally worked out. It took us, you know, it took us like around about the 17th century, Galileo, and um, and then Isaac Newton for sure. Um, this this idea of um, Correcting our intuitions, getting reality, you know, we've got to test it because our intuitions themselves can be completely askew. Um, but, uh, and, and Popper, Karl Popper, a philosopher, uh, coined the term falsifiability to try to highlight the importance of this. But Popper, and, and Popper's the one philosopher that scientists will cite. They like him. He has a very heroic view of, 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 of scientists, you know, they're just out to falsify their 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 uh, their theories. Um, that a theory that has is that we accept, he says, it just hasn't been falsified yet. You know, so uh, it's a very heroic view of, of of scientists. They're never egotistically attached to their to their theories. You know, very idealized view of um, of of science. But one of the things that Popper had said. And this relates very much to this whole idea of beauty in our scientific theories, is that in order for us to, you know, we have to be able to test our theories in order for them to be scientific. But our whole way of framing our theories and the questions that we want to solve and the, the, the data that we're interested in looking at, but in particularly in the theory formation, there are certain metaphysical presumptions uh, that uh, that we bring with us in order to do science at all. Um, they can't be validated by science, but they, they're implicit in the very carrying on of science. One of these is that nature is law-like, 
right, that um, if we find some anomaly, some uh, contradiction to an existing law, we don't say, oh, well, maybe nature just doesn't, isn't law-like. Maybe this was a, a, a miracle. Uh, no, we say we got the laws wrong and back to the drawing board. You know, Newtonian physics becomes relativistic physics and quantum mechanics. Um, we're always assuming, presuming, that nature is law-like in order to do science at all. We also bring with us our intuitions about beauty um, and that, you know, that all things being equal, if we have two theories that are adequate to the empirical evidence, to all the empirical evidence we have, we go with the one that's more elegant, more beautiful, usually that means more mathematically beautiful, um, and, um, and that can be a very, very strong metaphysical um, ingredient in the formation of our theories. I mean, it was particularly uh, dramatic in Einstein uh, that um, you know he had these very strong views of the beauty and harmony of the laws of nature, um, and that that was really utilized in uh, in in general relativity. And then in 1920, when you know so. General Relativity was published in 1915. It had to wait until the solar eclipse, um, I, I believe 1920, or maybe, yeah, I think 1920, when Eddington um, went to Africa and, you know, took pictures of the eclipse, and, and sure enough, light um, was uh, bent. Light rays were bent because of uh, the mass of the sun, that the mass of the sun, the uh, actually, gravity actually distorted the space, the geometry of space-time. You know, so this was the first empirical verification that came for uh, for for general relativity. There really was nothing before then, and um, Einstein sort of jokingly uh, had had said to somebody, you know, um, if if the empirical evidence had not validated his uh, theory, he would have felt sorry for the dear Lord, the theory is true. And he said to um, Hans Reichenbach, a, a, for a uh, philosopher of science and a physicist, um, uh, he knew uh, before the empirical validation came that the theory had to be true because, because it's too, it was too beautiful and elegant not to be true. It's a very strong oh, intuition. But it's, you know, that the laws of nature are, you know, elegant, um, you know, that they're math, which usually means mathematically elegant. I mean, we're moved by this. Um, you know, when you, you can't learn uh, relativity theory and not be moved by the, the absolute, you know, so the beauty of it. Yeah. So, you know, look, there are people who say the string theory, you know, it's not science until you can somehow get out some way of getting reality to answer us back. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's not science; it's metaphysics, uh, and you know this is you know. I mean, also you know the notion of the of the multiverse. Uh, you know, there are, it certainly seems that it's it's hard to get any empirical evidence uh, for parallel universes, um, but yet it's a it's a very elegant way of answering a lot of questions. Um, you know, fine tuning and all of this. Um, so, you know, these are these are places in which you know, for science, 
you know, might be slipping over into philosophy, you know, if, if we can't possibly get out of it. Or what we have to just keep doing is, um, you know, working away at it and, 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 and perhaps we'll be able to, to get, figure out an ingenious way for reality to answer us back, you know, to give us some clue. Is it this way or isn't it this way? I'm, I'm, I have this interest in Spinoza. Uh, and the way I got so interested in Spinoza is, well, I have a fixation on Einstein that goes all the way back to the days when I was, you know, I, I started as a, a physics student and, you know, Einstein was my hero and general relativity is the most beautiful theory um, and um, it's the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful things uh, I know. And, um, and Einstein took Spinoza very, very seriously. He was constantly quoting Spinoza, whenever he was asking a philosophical views, um, and this, so that got me interested in Spinoza, and so I started to read him, and he's a very odd philosopher, he made every claim for reason, I make a lot of claims for reason, but he made every claim for reason that's ever been made. Um, anyway, he was very prescient about many things, as you well know, uh, um, Antonio Damasio is also a great, you know, very different scientist, neuroscientist. He has a book looking for Spinoza. He was, uh, he's also kind of in awe at the intuitions that Spinoza had. Anyway, Spinoza, so I started, I volunteered, uh, you know, to teach Spinoza. And the first time it was like, what is this stuff? You know, he tries to prove everything a priori in the Euclidean mode, starts with axioms and definitions and, you know, these, these seemingly bogus um, proofs and, you know, ending with QED. But about the third time I started teaching Spinoza, it started to make a lot of sense. When I realized the basic intuition that he was supplying, which is the same intuition that Einstein had, which is that reality is rational through and through, that there is always a reason that anything happens, um, and that Ultimately, if we were to ever arrive at the final theory of everything, um, that theory would explain truly everything, including why it itself was the final theory of everything. You know, that it would it, it is the only possible theory, um, and it will explain why it is the only possible theory, so that nature can answer for itself. What did, were we to have a complete understanding of nature, it would entirely answer for itself, it doesn't need anything transcendent. You can think of nature as God, therefore, because it is this self-explanatory thing. Spinoza calls it the causa sui, um, the thing that you know causes itself because it it contains its own explanation. That is one possible answer to the question of why is there something rather than nothing. It was the answer that you know Spinoza gave, and that Einstein also had faith in, you know, that the laws of nature, were we to understand them in their final form, would explain themselves. We would see why they had to be. Um, maybe we'll never see that, you know. Spinoza says we never will because we're a finite and the final theory of everything would, would be infinite. But also Stephen Hawking, at the very end of A Brief History of Time, he's He's, he's, he qu he's talking about what Einstein says. He said, you know, Einstein once asked, you know, if we understood the final, uh, the laws of nature, would we understand why they have to be the laws of nature? Would we understand 
after all, the laws, they're just equations. What puts the fire in these equations? What makes them realize? So he's quoting Einstein, um, but Einstein is really putting into modern language uh, questions that Spinoza had asked, and Einstein buys into Spinoza's intuitions that the universe ultimately could explain itself, and that's you know what we're kind of after. That would be, and then when when Hawking says at the end of the of, of uh, brief history of time, were you know, that very last uh, paragraph, you know, were we to see this, then we would know the mind of God. You know, people, you know, how scientists are always talking about the mind of God, very bad because it misleads people into thinking they're theists. So you know, of course, you know, when scientists talk about you know the mind of God, what they're talking about is you know or you know, the viewpoint of God, what God would do. You know, they're talking about the objective view, whether or not we can know it, you know, the, 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 the form that the laws of nature ought to take. It's, it's a metaphorical use of the word God and the mind of God. Um, it's very misleading to people. I was at a Passover Seder and people, you know, we started talking about whether God exists and people say, well, Stephen Hawking says God exists. He talks about the mind of God in the, in the last part. But anyway, this is, this is what Stephen Hawking was uh, parodying there was sort of Einstein, who himself um, is, this is the Spinoza-type talk, the way one talks about nature. If you think that nature itself can supply the final explanation for itself. Um, because I want to attract students both of philosophy and of English, um, I, okay, so I had done this chapter for the Oxford Handbook on Spinoza, on Spinoza's influence on literature, which turns out to be immense. Um, so Spinoza, a hundred years before the Enlightenment, he seeds the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment really comes from the ideas of Spinoza, that um, religion as we normally, as, it, as it's, you know, had been practiced up until his day and still is practiced, um, is not advancing the species, but reason is the way to advance the species. And, uh, you know, we can reason things out. His magnum opus was called The Ethics, and he tries to deduce you know, ethics itself from, from, from reason, from human nature. And, and he does, he does a, quite a good job. And um, everybody attacks him because he's really pulling the rug out from religion. We don't need the notion of a transcendent God to explain nature. Nature itself could, would, would, would we only understand it thoroughly, explain itself. We don't need God to lay down morality, human nature. Um, if we understand human nature and what will m uh, most uh, make us flourish, um, which is what we want to do, um, that that will give us the grounding for morality. So we don't need God for the two major reasons that religion brings in God, you know, to say why there's something rather than nothing and to ground morality. So, you know, not only was Spinoza attacked by his own Jewish community of Amsterdam that put him in harem, you know, the Jewish version of excommunication, um, even before he published, uh, actually he didn't publish the ethics during his lifetime. His friends published it afterwards. It was considered way too dangerous to publish during his lifetime. Um, but at, at 24, he was put into harem. Um, and then it, it, uh, it, it fell on greater Christian Europe to universally condemn him. I mean, he was the most castigated man in all of Europe. He was, he was, he was uh, to get your 
your clerical and your academic um, advancement, you had to have your criticisms of Spinoza in place. Um, but that meant that everybody was reading him in order to attack him. And a hundred years later, more or less, the Enlightenment happens. He's the pivotal thinker um, in the Enlightenment. Jonathan Israel's magnificent um, three-part uh, series on, um, on the radical Enlightenment places Spinoza you know, at the very center of this. Well, he's also pivotal in literary history. Many um, literary thinkers, from Goethe to, to Borges to Melville, Herman Melville, to George Eliot, who was the first English translator of, of Spinoza, were influenced uh, by Spinoza, or they were reacting against Spinoza. So, and, and the ones who are influenced by him tend to think they're kind of hopeful, optimistic people. We can advance our species by being reasonable. <laughs> Let us reason together. Um, and that's what the Enlightenment is all about. Um, there's also you know, an anti-Enlightenment uh, movement. And that also influenced um, literature. And the pivotal thinker there is Schopenhauer. So what this course is, is studying both Spinoza and Schopenhauer, and then tracing their literary influence up until, you know, 20th, 21st century uh, literature, the sort of the optimists and the pessimists, the pro-enlightenment people, um, the anti-enlightenment people, those who think the intellect um, is something, you know, is a force for uh, societal improvement, and those who um, who are in despair, and, you know, the intellect is, is just uh, another way of deluding ourselves. So. Yeah, well, I, you know, the first person who comes to mind um, is, is Kurt Gödel. Uh, and he was, uh, so Gödel thought of himself um, as a philosopher. He was trying to prove, mathematically prove, um, a viewpoint that he came to probably when he was an undergraduate, um, Platonism, right? Mathematical Platonism, that mathematics uh, actually describes an objective world. It's not that we're, it's not like chess. It's not just we're making up these rules and seeing the implications um, of these rules. It's not a study of psychology. It's not, you know, the structure of the human mind. Uh, mathematics is, you know, really describing something that's objectively true. So that's his, you know, the Platonism, the Platonic view of mathematical truth. And, um, and Gödel uh, was influenced uh, as he, when he was an undergraduate. He was in the history of philosophy course. The uh, professor was Gampertz, and he wrote when he was an old man. When somebody said, you know, who were the philosophers who most influenced you? He, he, he listed Gampertz, Plato, of course. Uh, Leibniz, um, he was very uh, interested in Leibniz, but um, so this was a you know this was this philosophical problem. What is math really about? Is it descriptive um, or is it uh, are are we basically making it up um, that we 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 stipulate certain rules and we see what the implications of these rules are? So here's a you know a, a philosophical problem that precipitated uh, you know, one of the most important results in, 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 
in mathematics when Harvard gave uh, Good all his uh, honorary doctorate, they said this was for the most important mathematical result in the ha past hundred years. I mean, one can dispute that. that. But um, you know, he was he was he was he was going after a philosophical problem. He thought that he had actually demonstrated Platonism. Um, of course, he hadn't. You know, he hadn't proved, but he got out incredible mathematics. Um, as a result, and revolutionized the field, re revolutionized uh, formal logic. It became, you know, a bona fide field of mathematics rather than just something that was taught among philosophers. So, you know, there's a very concrete example of somebody thinking as a philosopher, thinking philosophically, going after a philosophical problem, um, and doing amazing uh, scientific mathematical work. Well, you need good philosophy. We have a field of philosophy, very, very basic, called epistemology, which is theory of knowledge. Um, and any time you make a claim um, of knowledge at all, you're making an epistemolo epistemological claim. You're claiming to know, you know, to have a view um, on what knowledge is, what's required for knowledge, what it is, you know, and okay, one of the basic differences between belief and knowledge is, well, you can have false beliefs, you can't have false knowledge, that's just a misuse of the term, but also um, knowledge has to be grounded. Well, what counts as good grounds uh, for a belief? This is, you know, this is the field of epistemology, and every claim you make uh, about knowledge is implicitly making claims about epistemology, and there's, this is, you know, this is a very, you know, in that way, philosophy is implicated in scientific claims, in all claims, right? Um, but I would dispute, it, it has happened. It has happened almost, you know, accidentally in the history of science and the history of philosophy that philosophers have actually contributed uh, to scientific questions, often to, to entire domains, right? The, the philosophers were asking a question, but then the empirical methodology caught up with and, and, and so it got taken out of the domain of philosophy and into the domain of science. You know, that happened with physics, which used to be called natural philosophy. Um, you know, it happened with physics, with cosmology, it happened with biology. You know, Aristotle was a, bio, he was a kind of proto-biologist. Um, it happened with psychology, it happened with linguistics, it happened with uh, logic, it happened with AI. These were taken as they develop into mature sciences. They're no longer philosophical. But the philosophers, you know, in some sense, prompted it by asking the questions prematurely. So now that can be seen as, oh, isn't philosophy helpful to science? Or it can be seen as philosophy is very futile. You know, philosophers just sort of send up a signal saying, Science needed here. Please catch up. We're blathering on and on, and we need you know some science so we can get some real answers here. That's you know, but it has happened that that's, that that philosophy has contributed in that way. But that's not that's not the role of of uh, of philosophy. Um, it's not to be scientists. We have science uh, to be. To give us science, and you know, so so we I, we don't judge philosophy by how much it contributes uh, to science. I would say, you know, what philosophy is basically trying to do is um, make us coherent. We're very compartmentalized creatures. We hold many um, inconsistent beliefs, um, and I mean, even, even the scientists who. Um, are saying that you know, we can get along without philosophy, and then put forth um, a view of the philosophy of science in order to, uh, to 
you know, say to justify this, don't realize that they're being inconsistent because they're engaging in philosophy even while they're saying, you know, we can get along without it. And, and, and so, but we are, we are, we happily cohabit with many inconsistencies, including moral inconsistencies. And the job of philosophy, and it is and has always been, since Socrates wandered around in the Agora making a bloody nu nuisance of himself until they gave him a cup of hemlock to get him out of the way, is to show up our inconsistencies, to make our cohabitation with our inconsistencies less happy. Um, and that is how we've made moral progress, uh, by philosophical arguments, pointing out uh, that there's an inconsistency here between uh, principles that we're already holding and certain activities, behavior that we're engaging in, um, for example, slavery, for example, the way women have been treated, the way animals are treated now recently with, with Singer's arguments. Um, trying to point out our incoherences, our inconsistencies, and uh, uh, make a, to maximize our, our coherence. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes what this involves is showing, you know, that certain intuitions we have are inconsistent with what science is proving. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to have to give up certain views um, about ourselves because of evolutionary psychology, for example, or we're going to have to give up certain views about causality or individua uh, individuation because of what uh, physics is proving, but sort of trying to bring us to maximize our coherence. Um, and that often means taking the results of science into account, um, but other things as well in, ge so, in so general. Nice. As a way of making us uh, coherent. Um, you know, inconsistencies can't be true. And uh, if we are harboring inconsistencies, as we all do, um, that, uh, that they ought to be examined. And we ought to see which has to go. We have to weigh them um, and see which has to go. If you want to know what kind of world we live in, um, you know, what, what space, time, causality, what are the laws of nature? Um, it's science, you know, the science is the best means we have because it gets reality to be a collaborator. Brilliant, that's amazing. And, and therefore we can correct our deepest intuitions, even about space, time, causality, it's amazing, right? Uh, that we really can't, um, that, our, that our folk physics is all wrong, right? And, and we know this because of how far we've gotten with physics. Um, and um, about how much, how much we're in control, right? How, you know, our intuitions about how much we actually control uh, in our own lives. How much are we agents and how much, you know, are we just um, trans following the laws of nature? Um, about which, over which we have no control. You know, science has input about that too. But, you know, and what philosophy tries to do is look at the best picture we have of the moment, of the way that the world is, and try to reconcile that with other intuitions that we have. And also, you know, looking at the intuitions that we bring to bear in order to do science itself. Science itself, you know, there's, there are a lot of intuitions. We spoke about beauty, you know, the lawfulness of nature. These are intuitions that science presumes. You know, there is this question, you know, morality seems somewhat mysterious. Um, you know, is, is it 
uh, you know, there there are the laws of nature that just explain, you know, matter and motion and energy and um, space, time, the geometry of them. Um, these are all statements about what is. Uh, you know, how, even if we had a complete description of what is the case, you know, how could we derive from that what ought to be the case? And yet, we, we all have very strong intuitions um, about uh, morality, certainly when it applies to us. Um, I've never even met a three-year-old who didn't have very strong intuitions about fairness, you know, it, it, at least when it applies to them. You know, when you, you give their sister a bigger portion, they're immediately squawking that that's not fair, right? That this is, you know, so these, these moral intuitions come very, um, very uh, naturally to us. And, um, uh, but, you know, are, are they descriptions or are they, or is this just part of our psychology? Is it just uh, all thrown up out of the workings of our genes? Um, where do these things come from? So, I think, uh, I, I don't think that it has the status, the sort of ontological status that physics has or even that I would say math has. I think it really is rooted in our psychology, that there are certain um, uh, moral intuitions that we have, certainly regarding ourselves and our own mattering. I bring it back to this concept of mattering. And, but that those, and we can't live lives that are recognizably human uh, without, um, uh, without presuming these, these, these truths about our own mattering. But yet, if we're, if we're going to presume them, then other things follow. If we're going to presume that we matter and that others have to treat us as if we matter, either we think that we're somehow ontologically special, the universe revolves around us, which is, you know, to be certifiably nuts, um, or you're going to have to extend this to other creatures like us. How far do we take it? Um, okay, so basically, my view about morality is it's rooted in human nature. Um, it's not, you know, there are certain um, things that we have to take for granted about our own life. Uh, we can't live uh, a coherently human life without taking for granted uh, that, you know, that we have the right to, to live and, and to flourish, and that we all try to do that. Um, and that, uh, but as soon as you say, this, that you, we have the right, and as soon as we make noises when other people violate um, our right to, to live and to flourish, you're already on moral ground. Um, to live a coherent human life, you're already occupying moral ground, and then you have to see what follows from that. Um, and that's what the, the history of moral philosophy has tried to show us. You know, you have to extend it to enslave people, to colonize people, to women, right? They have as much right to matter as men, uh, to children, to, to you know, and, and perhaps to animals, you know, that, that this, is, this is what moral philosophy, this is the kind of progress um, that's been made through taking what we already take for granted, have to take for granted, and then seeing the consequences of it, and, and pointing at our incoherencies and, and not following through on the consequences. This is typical philosophical tactics. Uh, if science is about getting reality to answer us back, philosophy is about prodding our inner contradictions and trying to maximize our coherence. It is part of human nature that each of us, well, it's part of 
nature of every organism that they try to survive um, and to flourish, right? That is what it is to be an organism. Um, and of course, the genes are propelling this. What this is all behavior that is propelled by the genes wanting to uh, propagate copies of themselves into the future, right? So this is all. But we being humans, we try to give reasons for this. We don't say it's just the machinations of the selfish gene. Try to, we occupy um, train of, 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 of reasons. And so where we try to give reasons for our beliefs, we try to give reasons for our actions. Um, and in doing this, you know, we're already occupying moral ground, epistemological ground, moral ground. It's, it's, it's unavoidable in living a human life. And then consequences follow. Um, and that's the job of moral philosophy to figure those objective consequences out. So it's in some sense all objective, except the foundations is, are you know, human nature, how we feel about our own lives um, and have to. Okay, so me, Rebecca, <laughs> how did I, I don't know, you know, I come from this really, I, it seems, you know, when, I, you know, who, who can explain their own life, I always feel like I'm a novelist and trying to, I can make up any story in explaining my life, um, but it seems somehow the central fact about me is that I was born into a very religious household in which people claim to seem to know all sorts of things about the nature of the universe, that there was a God and that he had a very special relationship with the Jews, like the, the tribe that I just happened to have been born into, and uh, that, that he wanted us to live a certain way, and he had all these rules, very intrusive rules for every aspect of our lives. And um, my question was always, well, how do you know this? You know, and that was, I, I was just always asking the, the grown-ups around me, how do we know? Uh, that this is true. And so it just made me very, very interested in how do we know? Questions of epistemology. Um, and then I decided when I was pretty young that the best way that we can know certainly about the world is to be is science. So I decided I was, you know, I, I wanted to study science and that I wanted to study physics and that's what I intended to do until I took a course on quantum mechanics and I found what the professor was saying to be sort of just like my religious household. I would ask certain questions, and he would say, you're not allowed to ask that question. Um, you know, shut up and calculate. That reminded me just like my Orthodox teachers, right? You're not allowed to ask that question. Um, and then I went off. People told me I should go speak to a philosopher, so I went to speak to Sidney Morgenbesser. At, I was at Columbia. I was at Barnard. And I went, to, but I was taking all my physics courses at, uh, at Columbia. Went to speak to Sidney Morgenbesser, and we had long conversations. And they were like, they were like, uh, they were wonderful. He was the best talker in the world. He was probably the best talker in philosophy since Socrates. You know, he pub and he had the same publishing record as Socrates. Nothing, published <laughs> close to zero. Um, and then he told me I was a philosopher. That, that you know, I was really the questions that I was interested in were mostly philosophical. So I went to graduate school in philosophy.